everyone. Welcome to the 114th episode of The Goods, a film podcast. This is a fun and special episode. We, we were starting our theme month. We, we did one outing of train month, and we have derailed train month for a special guest appearance of our old pal, Gavin McDowell. That's right. We're making a whistle stop. Welcoming back the smartest man on the podcast, <laughs> Gavin. How's it going, Gavin? I'm very, I'm very flattered. At least the most thoroughly educated. That's right. And relevant for tonight, I think. Um, so as always, we let our guests recommend the, the film. And uh, Gavin selected a movie that he encouraged me to watch a while ago. And I didn't. And so now when I said, hey, you can choose any movie for us to watch, he said, well, now you're actually going to watch this movie that I told you to watch a while ago. And that movie is the, the 2011 Israeli film Footnote, directed by Joseph Cedar. So I did not know anything about this movie. It did actually get nominated for Best International Picture in its uh, Oscar year. Um, so it does have one Oscar nomination, but I, I had I knew nothing about it. Uh, what about you, Brian? Had you ever heard of this director, this movie before? No, this was new to me as well. I got about like 20 minutes into the movie and I messaged Dan. I said, you know, pretty much the only quote unquote Jewish movie that comes to mind for me is Fiddler on the Roof. That's the depth of my exposure to cinema. But it ended up being pertinent, and we'll get back to Fiddler on the Roof. For sure. Gavin, first of all, welcome back. You are in Paris, which you were last time because that is where you live. And yeah. we are recording this on Eastern U.S. time, 9.30 p.m. It's pushing 10 now, which means what time is it for you over there? It's pushing 4 a.m. here. <laughs> I woke up after a five-hour nap. I hate you all. Um, you specified this time, though. You picked this time. I did. I. I mean, I. I was. I, I provided some options, one of which was not 4 a.m. Okay. But I'm. I'm very excited now and wide awake. There we go. So. So I'll get back to sleep after that. So Gavin, why did you select this movie? Why, why did you want me and Brian to watch this, and why did you want to talk about it? Okay, right. So footnote, um, let's say it came out in 2011. I was already, uh, I would say, Oscar conscious by this point, a thorough cinephile. I remember when uh, an earlier Israeli film had been nominated for Best Foreign Feature in around 2008. That would have been The Band's Visit. Have either of you heard of that? Hmm. Well, anyway, that kind of put me on the map. I'm pretty sure that was the first Israeli film I'd ever seen. And you know, between 2008 and 2011, I watched about 20 Israeli movies. Uh, a big, big part of that was because for, for two of those years, I was living in Israel. So it was kind of a rite of passage for a lot of biblical scholars. They spend, spend time at least studying modern Hebrew. I was uh, doing a master's in, in Jerusalem at Hebrew University, which is the institution in the film. Because, Gavin, could you remind our listeners a little more about what your field of work is? Yeah, so I tell people I'm a biblical scholar that because that's easy. I'm more of a, a, a Jewish studies person coming from outside perspective. So I mostly do. Um, uh, my thesis was about a, a rabbinic text. Uh, I don't think it'll be useful to discuss discuss that in, in greater detail. 
but it was a rabbinic text about the Bible. Uh, I studied Aramaic translations of the Bible, so it's kind of an intersection between uh, the Hebrew Bible and uh, Jewish interpretations of it. Is midrash a relevant term? Uh, yeah, the text I studied was definitely a midrash. I I don't know if they used it. I don't know if they use the term in the film. I wrote down every every field related term they use, and they say agadah, but I don't think they say midrash. How do you know that word? I know that word because one of my favorite films is the Ten Commandments. And in reading about the making of the Ten Commandments, it said that some of Moses's life is not described in the Bible proper, so the producers had to dig into the midrashim. <laughs> As I recall, the movie begins with Cecil B. DeMille comes out from behind this curtain that they, they put on some set somewhere, and he talks about he talks about extra biblical sources, and he mentions Greek sources, uh, but. I don't remember mentioning the midrash, but that is true. Yes, it does. It does depend on that. But yeah, so it's it's an Israeli film that came out when I right after I think I had left Israel, and I had seen another of Joseph Cedar's films while I was there, uh, Beaufort, which is completely different in tone and style as a war film. Uh, and I'll get into that if you. I'll talk further about Israeli cinema. I hope. Um, and it's about the industry. And when I was doing my PhD here in Paris. Uh, my Dr. Fater, my dissertation um, director, Daniel Stokel, said that this is, you know, this is the film about Jewish studies. And Tim Brighton reviewed on alternate ending, which I, I believe I had read his review several years before I actually got around to seeing the film. So that's like those are the main reasons. It's cool. Yeah. So I definitely had not seen this one. And to be honest, I don't know if I've seen any Israeli films. So this was eye opening for me, too. You have now. So. Yeah, there you go. What was I'm trying to remember the the last movie you brought? What was Destiny? What country was that made in? It was Egyptian French. Egypt, right? Yeah, it's it an Egyptian film. Well, yeah, it's Egyptian director, French money, and it takes take, takes place for um, a few moments in French. Uh, yeah, so I gave you an Arabic film last time, and I gave you your your first Hebrew film. Broadening our our geopolitical inclusion. On the show. Thank you it, for that. It gave me another excuse to be cranking Bashana Haba'a as last heard in the International New Year's Sesame Street special. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> we're, we're a long way out from Rosh Hashanah, uh, so not quite not quite appropriate. Maybe for the, the, the solar year. But it's the, um... That's true, yeah. So... I'm ready to dive into what happens in footnote and Gavin, feel free to take us on discursions or fill in any holes that I might miss because I, I think I got most of the movie, but I definitely think there was some contextual cultural things that might've slipped through the cracks for me. Yeah, that's definitely the reason I chose it because it needs some, it needs some, you need an interpreter, I think to fully understand the film. And I remember reading Tim Brayton's review in the first paragraph. He says, "You know, I I'm neither care nor I'm interested in the Talmud." <laughs> but I still got I still got a few things in this movie, despite that. And I thought that's uh, I felt I felt bad for him because there's a lot of things that you miss. Mm -hmm. So this movie opens with I, I'm not 100 percent sure on the pronunciation. I was going entirely by the subtitles. I think it's is it Uriel 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 Uriel, and the last name is. Skolnick? Skolnick, yes. Uriel Skolnick and Eliezer Skolnick. Yeah. So Uriel is, he's a charismatic young professor and he's at that Hebrew University of Jerusalem, which I guess I didn't realize that was the one you studied at. I was curious. And 
it seems as if he's been elected into this prestigious Academy of Sciences and Humanities. It seems like it's a state a state affiliated organization. I'm not 100% clear on that. I was looking to see if I wrote down the exact uh, institution. I would say the Israeli uh, Academy of Sciences, the Israel Academy of Sciences, which I don't know a whole lot about, not aspiring to entry into that academy. So um, at the beginning, it's, uh, I, I don't know, you guys are usually the ones who describe the scenes that we're looking at. as beginning where they're reading a whole list of, a whole list of accomplishments and awards that have been giving to the younger Skolnik, but the entire time the camera is focused on the older one. Uh, and he, he is not, he's not happy. <laughs> so. Yeah. It's really interesting. It's, it's this entire scene is framed just from this resentful glare on the, the dad's face. So the dad's name is Eliezer. Eliezer Skolnik. And, you know, the first maybe 15 or 20 minutes are just him feeling real nasty about, all this praise that's being poured upon his son in this induction ceremony. And we learn via a flashback with voiceover shortly thereafter that, that Eliezer is a Talmud scholar himself, just like Uriel. But unlike his son, he, who's like very charismatic and warm and kind of gives off the air of being kind of like progressive and inclusive, Eliezer is definitely like a conservative, hardline, methodical scholar, and he's got a reputation for being really stern and difficult and rigorous. And so I was definitely like, the dynamic is clear, but there's some of the specifics here that I was hoping you could help us understand a little bit, Gavin. So first of all, I kind of know what the Talmud is. And can you maybe just give us less enlightened listeners just an overview of what the Talmud is and how it relates to, for example... Judaism and the Old Testament and stuff. Right. Uh, yeah, that's one of the main reasons I picked the film is so I could talk about the Talmud. You don't have a lot of feature films about the Talmud. I guess you know, usually I, I before I explain something, I have to ask. I have to I have to get a sense of what you of what you don't know because being really steeped in this, I don't know what normal people know right. about the Talmud. So what what do you know about the Talmud? Just just describe positively what you know. You don't have to admit. So. I would say that, from my understanding, you know, there's the Old Testament, there's the Torah. Now, is the Torah just the Pentateuch, the first five books? If if you're referring to the written Torah, yes, that's the, the first five books of the Bible, the Hebrew Bible. Okay, that's my extent. My understanding of the Talmud is that it was, well, I could be wrong on this. I was under the impression that it was not strictly biblical, but it was biblical adjacent and came after the Bible and sort of described, it's kind of like the equivalent for, I grew up Catholic. It's kind of the equivalent of like the catechism in that it describes elements of the practice. Uh, that's not wrong. Um, that's one way of thinking about it. So, okay, I'll go into the whole, the whole spiel now, uh, the primer on, on the Talmud. So the basic premise of rabbinic Judaism which is you know the primary form of Judaism uh, for the past two thousand years, is that there are, there are two Torahs, the written one, which is especially the 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 Pentateuch, the first five books. Um, but the uh, written Torah can also extend uh, to to the entire Hebrew Bible. Uh, and then there's the oral Torah, which is teachings that have been passed down uh, through word of mouth through generations. 
and then eventually written down themselves in um, a document called the Mishnah, which is mentioned a couple of times in the movie. Uh, so the Mishnah is the core of the Talmud. It is a, a law code basically divided into six sections on various topics. So, for example, the first section is on agricultural laws. The second one is on holidays. Third one is about what to do with women. Uh, the fourth one is like case law and then holy things and purity, purity laws, etc. The six orders of the Mishnah. And the Talmud is that document plus commentary on it called the Gemara. And in fact, there are two Talmuds. Uh, I don't know if you knew that. Something that I expect most people not to know, right? So when you say the Talmud, it's referring to the Babylonian Talmud or Bavli, which was redacted in in the centuries leading up to the the rise of Islam, uh, redacted in in Mesopotamia and Iraq and Iran, uh, under the auspices of the the Persian Empire. I don't want to get too into that. Uh, it's like not not in Rome, not under the Roman Empire. Uh, and it is one of the longest books of antiquity. It's like uh, the printed edition is something like 2,700 folio pages, and folios are paginated front and back, so that's over over 5,000 pages of closely printed text. It usually appears with the Mishnah and Gemara together, and then all around it you have medieval commentary. So it is, it is like the book of books and has largely... Uh, even for for it's like the average Jew, I would imagine certainly today has not read the Talmud in its entirety. Uh, largely symbolic value as kind of the the compendium of of all Jewish learning. It's the main thing you study, like in traditional rabbinic uh, schools, is is the Talmud and its commentary. Have you read the whole thing? I have not. No, not even in translation. Uh, I have. Uh, uh, I mean, it's five thousand. It's five thousand four hundred pages long in in Hebrew and Aramaic, so it's like it's over like ten thousand pages. You can find you can find a translation online. I could direct you if you're if you're if you're interested. Um, Casual reading, right? It was just uh, it was it was targeted by the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages and burned um, because it has it has some passages about Jesus. They're not very complimentary. Um, I don't want to talk too much about the Babylonian Talmud because that's that's not the one this movie is about. It's about the other Talmud, the uh, the Jerusalem Talmud, as they call it, Yerushalmi in the film, or the 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 Talmud of the land of Israel, or sometimes the Palestinian Talmud, a, a term they don't use in the film. You can probably guess why. Uh, and that was, it also has the Mishnah as a central component. And it has a Gemara, but the Gemara is is different. It was written in uh, was it written in Eretz Israel in in um, in the West, uh, right? The the areas that now constitute the modern modern state of Israel Israel Palestine uh, by rabbis that live mostly in the northern area, uh, written in a different form of Aramaic for the commentary of the Gemara, uh, and survives in one manuscript complete manuscript and is studied by nobody <laughs> that's uh that's just that's an exaggeration it is the catholic church didn't bother with this one <laughs> it didn't um it is 
it is less popular by reputation. So it's like the Babylonian Talmud is a canonical book, the Jerusalem Talmud, uh, not, not really. And that's kind of the in-joke in the film is that Eliezer Skolnik is a specialist of a Talmud that no one really cares much about. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, I found myself pretty interested in this film. I, so I am not a Talmud expert by any means, but this could almost just as easily be a story about like a small group that's really into any niche hobby. Like this is a very insular group that is super dedicated to Talmud scholarship. I completely agree. And I think it, it took me a while to calibrate that the movie was well aware of how like insular and geeky the tribe actually was the moment that that actually hit. I'll get to it in a minute, but it's when the conference group is meeting and their meeting room is a little closet. Yeah, the, they can't even open the door. That was that was the turning point for me, too. <laughs> but we, we have some other ground to cover before we get there. Right. Can I can I push back on one of the comments that you made? You kind of brought it up. Is that um, please do as you kind of you, you posited the relationship between father and son is conservative versus liberal, which is not how I would have characterized it, even though that's probably right. The film doesn't really get into the politics as such. It's more that the father is a classical, sorry, I have to use the word, he's a classical philologist. And what it is, is a battle over what, what Jewish studies means. As we are talking about the geeky thing, you're talking about Jewish studies, which I, I would I would hope is is kind of a very, I mean, it's as wide or as narrow as he wanted to be in the father. For the father, the Jewish studies means study of the Talmud. Uh, and that's that's it, you know. And for the son, it is much broader than that. And he writes about a bunch of topics, uh, mostly related to the Talmud. So when, he, when they talk about the books, he's actually published. But he's writing about broader topics that appeal to a wider audience. As you see, like even normal people have read his, like read the son's work or are aware of it. Yeah, it, it sounded like some of the stuff that the son had written about was like history in the biblical era, family life as related to talmud rules uh well the talmud the talmud is a product of what uh, what our what our tribe calls uh late antiquity and late antiquity is the period after the bible but before destiny <laughs> it's um before the rise of islam basically you have the 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 late roman empire where everything's going to hell uh and kind of the five centuries of chaos until until islam arrives uh and that is the era in which the talmud was written uh so Wait, no, so the father just studies his Talmud study. Uh, for the son is broader, and it's not just broader. It's the father hates people who study other Jewish topics that are not part of the Talmud, such as the Midrash. Uh, the Midrash and the Talmud are like the two components of um, rabbinic Jewish texts of this period. And for him, uh, the, the greatest insult he can think of for another scholar is to call them a folklorist. Uh, which he uses like two or three times. And that's, that's what he thinks about. That's what he thinks his son is doing is, is, you know, folklore. The Midrash would, would a little more learned, learned than that, but he would think of it as folklore and not, not serious study of the law, you know? So I just want to say at this point that what had me thinking about Fiddler on the Roof early on is that a big theme in that story, the protagonist is a peasant farmer and he really admires scholars. Like his dream, if he won the lottery tomorrow, was that 
he would spend all his time at the temple and study presumably the Talmud. Like to him, an educated person is someone who studies scriptural texts all day long. And then later in the story, he meets a young guy who is college educated. And that guy is a Marxist. Like he is driven by the urge to change society and like to tear things apart rather than to uphold conservative orthodoxy. And it's all about generational relationships. So I saw all that at work ultimately in this film as well. Definitely. And and when I was kind of using the phrasing of conservative and progressive, one scene in particular I was thinking of, I guess it's more of like a generational way that I kind of meant it than, pol- than political. Um, although I think they're intertwined and I think the movie... I think it has hints of that, but I think you're right that it's not necessarily like politics isn't the thrust of it. But there's a scene we'll get to in a bit where there's an interview between the dad and a reporter and the reporter is a young woman and she's clearly bristling at every single thing that he says, which is like very harsh and judgmental. And I I think the fact that it was a, a young woman is like somewhat intentional as the person who was always bristling against all of that. I, I just thought that was kind of funny. But you're getting way ahead of yourselves. You're missing one of the best, like one of the funniest. Yeah, sorry. I'm bouncing around here. One other thing I wanted to chime in that happens early on is there's a bunch of dudes at like a sauna or something, some steam bath or just a men's locker room. And there's a discussion. Somebody says that like the state of Israel is too militant. It's been like he he describes it as like a Roman way of life as opposed to a traditional Jewish way of life, because his ideal for Jewish manhood is to really dedicate oneself to scholarship and study. It's like a, a softer masculinity than a military life. I feel like that was something that they discussed at the ceremony at the beginning. Yeah, it's really early on. Maybe I'm blending two scenes together, but it was definitely near the start of the movie. So I don't remember the sauna. It was like after they're playing. Well, it's again, um, we're getting ahead of our, ourselves. Like the, the scene I wanted to draw you back to is after this opening uh, I guess, opening monologue in which we can't see the person speaking who's the son, just see the father bristling. And then we cut um, the father steps outside for air and we learn why much later on. And he wants to get back into the to the the ceremony, but the guard won't let him. He doesn't recognize him. He doesn't know who he is. <laughs> yeah, like every building in this movie has an armed guard, which tells you about the the state of affairs, I guess. Oh no, that's that's um that's I didn't I didn't find that remarkable because that's how it is in uh, in Israel. It's like every time you go to the university, you have to open your bags and show you know show that you're not carrying a weapon. DC is a little bit like that too, Brian, if you ever go around. I don't know if you have had that experience going around DC, but... Yeah, I suppose so. I have seen that at the museums lately. Yeah. So anyways, I think Gavin's right. We could keep going here because as part of this uh, sort of montage where we learn a little bit about the life of Eliezer, we learned that a couple decades ago, he, he was on the verge of this major breakthrough that had taken him many years of study and only for the his rival, this other professor named Yehuda Grossman, to beat him out by, I think it was like a month or something like that. 
And it basically rendered Eliezer's entire life work to a footnote, which is like a phrase that gets emphasized and is, of course, the title of the movie. Right. So my understanding of what happened to him is that Eliezer's niche of a niche is studying different versions of the Talmud's text from like place to place. There's differences in what specifically is written in the book. And by analyzing the differences, he had determined that there was like a missing link Talmud, like an earlier printing that would unify these differences. And then what cut him off and invalidated his work because he was he was like Sherlock Holmes again. He was like deducing what was in this old, presumably lost book. And then Grusman found the book. Yeah, I could I could explain in detail. It's um, his career is actually based off of um, uh, incidents that really happened. It's like not not that dramatic. But what what Eliezer uh, Skolnik wanted to do is uh, I said that the Jerusalem Talmud it doesn't it doesn't uh, uh, it doesn't receive the same recognition or the same level of study as the Babylonian, and consequently we have fewer um, fewer manuscripts, not as much textual ev- evidence of this thing. So like last time I talked about the difference between when we're talking about destiny, I talked a lot about manuscripts and the survival of manuscripts. And we only have one complete manuscript of this Talmud, which you know, it's a very, very long, uh, still a very long book, not as long as the Babylonian Talmud, uh, printed for the first time, like most Jewish texts in the 16th century. And that first printing is still kind of, um, I'm not even sure if it's based off of the surviving manuscript or something else that's been lost. Uh, it's kind of like the standard, the standard text. And Eliezer is aware of citations of the Talmud in, in medieval literature, and the citations don't correspond to the printed text. And that's what he means when he talks about textual variations, and he believes that uh, there was a different a different version of the text that circulated among European Jews. He notices that the quotations, the different quotations come from, from Jews that lived in Europe in uh, the late Middle Ages. And uh, is trying to reconstitute this this text, which which doesn't exist, except in quotations. But then his his professional rival Yehuda Grossman finds it uh, finds the manuscript, which is the dream of every every major scholar, uh, which validates his theory. But of course, he doesn't get any credit. He doesn't get any credit for it. As he spent I don't know years upon years. Uh, reading through all the relevant literature and assembling the citations, which must have been uh, like someone who, who's kind of involved in the same line of work. That is, it's it's a very admirable thing, but he never published. And the guy just just, just finds a manuscript and he finds it in in the bindings of a book, uh, which is indeed a, a real thing, is that in for early printed books, you know, they would print whatever manuscripts they had available. They didn't care if they were good or bad manuscripts usually they were not they're not the best and then they would trash some of the manuscripts they used to help to help uh with the binding of their printed books and there's there's a considered project right now to um find lost manuscripts by taking apart taking apart book bindings uh and it's called the Euro- the European Geniza and I know people who are you know in the thick of it uh so it's actually a very a very interesting line of work where they you know Yehuda Grossman is portrayed as kind of um um well the film's antagonist he's not he's not uh he's just as much of a curmudgeon as eliezer uh, skolnik but he's gotten you know 
professional success. Yeah, he's lucked into it. Yeah. He's like the chairman of the board that gives out the prize that yes. takes up a lot of the time and discussion of the film. Right. So part of Eliezer's decades-long resentment towards pretty much everything, it seems, his his studies, his family, his rivals, is that he desperately wants to be selected for the Israel Prize. And it gets given out every year, and every year his name is submitted, and we learn that it's his son who submits his name every year. And he's never selected for it. And it seems there's a couple factors into why he's never being selected. I mean, first of all, he's an old hardlinist whose big revelation, big life study got undercut by the findings of this Grossman guy. But also the guy who's on the committee who selects it is Grossman, his one rival. So that probably isn't helping him out either. But every year he's he's gunning for this this Israel Prize Award going on 20 years now, I think they say. Kind of the subtext, I don't think it might not be explicitly stated, is that um, one reason he's not selected is not just because of his rival, because he's been so enmeshed in studying text that he hasn't published. So like the footnote of the title is, is it refers to a literal footnote. It's um, an acknowledgement that appeared in a study by a major you know, a fictional person based on a real person. I can find the real person's name. is His name is Feinstein. Um, who said who he thanked he thanked uh, Skolnick for drawing his attention to something, and that's that's like more than anything he's published, which includes not a, not an edition of a text, but an introduction to an edition of a text. Um, is uh, his life's his life's pride is this one footnote that you know he didn't even or something he didn't even write. So that's uh, so he he's published little is is the implication. Gotcha. But shortly after this, the ceremony that opens the, the movie, we see Eliezer getting a phone call. We don't hear what's on the other line, but we, we learn that after all of these years of study, Eliezer has finally been awarded the Israel Prize. And he's, he's happy about it, although he's not like jumping up and down. In fact, he's very understated about it. But we, we definitely see that it's like validation for him. Until the next day, Uriel, we, we, we follow him again, and he he's, gets a phone call that he needs to go meet with the Israel Prize Committee. And of course, he's learned from his dad that his, his father was selected for the Israel Prize. So he gets pulled in to the, uh, the Israel Prize Committee's quarters which appears to be like five people or something who probably like all work in the same office, definitely like a very small group and their, their quote unquote committee room. It's like, it's, it's a, my favorite punchline of the movie, a visual punchline is like, you're expecting this big grand boardroom. Like, you know how corporations are usually shown in movies. And it turns out when he turns the, corner he can't even open the door because they're sitting in basically a closet he's got to like drag in a little folding chair in there it's very funny and they're all like very cramped in these quarters it's a good bit of physical comedy because it, it gets kind of tense over the next scene but I, I i liked this this bit here 
I was laughing pretty hard here as well because we learned that like everybody at this little table has also won the prize. So it's like the grouping that is, you know, potentially going to get it is pretty small. So there's only so many names that could even be put forward. Right. I, I should I should point out that there are several Israel prizes. Um and it's like it, it's pretty prestigious and it's like it's like oh I'm trying to remember now the the prize the Swedes hand out every year. Uh Nobel, the Nobel Prize. Um right, so there's a Nobel Prize for, you know, literature, there's the Peace Prize. Uh stuff for like the hard sciences. I don't care about that stuff, but that's uh, uh this is this is specifically the Israel Prize for Jewish sciences and rabbinical literature. Right. So, you know, to get the Israel Prize for your contributions to uh, the country is is a little I mean, they probably have they probably have a boardroom for that. Yeah, I mean, I looked it up. It sounds like you do get it from the president and like the head of the legislature is there. So and it comes with a good bit of money. So it is pretty prestigious. But what it had me thinking of, Dan, was 24 speed which is a speed filmmaking competition that my alma mater runs where it's just like a few diehard alumni who have been doing it for, you know, 15 years. And the pool of people who can win the prize is not large, (laughs) but there's still some rivalries. Right. And, and what, Uriel learns in there in the the boardroom is that what has happened is in fact a large mistake. Eliezer was never actually selected to win the Israel Prize. In fact, Uriel was supposed to be the one to win the award, and this was just a big communication because they share the same last name. Well, it's like not just that, but they their their first names begin with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Something which doesn't really come off in, in subtitles. Gotcha. Um, and so this obviously brings to the surface the dynamics between Uriel and his father, because, you know, Uriel is kind of thriving, getting a lot of attention, but he still is clearly a proponent of his father's career and wants his father to be happy. And he basically says, you can't not give him the award at this point. It would just completely destroy him. He's been working on it for 20 years. It would ruin him if you tried to take it away from him now. And they go back and forth. There's like tension. There's some shoving. And eventually, Uriel says, all right, fine. I see that it was supposed to be me who wins it. I'm going to go tell my father what actually happened. And so he goes to do that, but... His father is celebrating with people. He's holding this mixer. And even though he's like the quietest, you know, stubborn old man, he's brought all these people together and celebrating. And it's clearly like lifted up his father. And so Uriel backs backs down from saying that he's going to tell his father. And he goes back to Grossman. So Grossman, remember, he's the rival of Eliezer. He's the head of this whole committee. So he's like the, the head honcho from it. He's not just on the committee, he's in charge of it. And so he goes back, he needs to like physically sign off on the letter of recommendation to give the Israel Award to Eliezer, which adds this whole layer of tension too. And so Uriel goes to Grossman, he says, no, 
I, we can't back down now. It's gone too far already. You got to let him keep it. And finally, Grossman relents and he says, all right, your father can keep it on the condition that, first of all, you need to write the letter of recommendation. I'll sign it, but you need to write it. And second of all, you can never be considered for this Israel Ward for the rest of your life. And, you know, at first, Uriel was kind of like deferring, saying he didn't need it. But like the fact that he could never get the award comes as this big blow. We kind of detect he was waiting for the old guard to pass before he kind of, you know, ascends to where the people in the boardroom are now or something like that. You know, definitely like waiting his time until the old guard passes. But the fact that he would have to commit to never receive it is is kind of a, a big concession here. Um, but he does agree to do it. Also seems difficult to enforce, frankly. I know, because they're all going to die in a few years, you know, so. but do, do you realize how long it takes this film to get to its central premise? The scene of the closet happens at the halfway mark. Oh, wow. Yeah, and before that is, I'm kind of surprised you glossed over it. One of the most puzzling scenes. Uh, well, you talked about the son of it's like after a game of squash. Or is around that time. He's playing squash with some people and he goes to the locker and uh, this is Uriel and someone has stolen all his clothes. I forgot about that. Yeah. And how could you forget about that? It was like one of the things <laughs> I, I retained from my first viewing years ago. Yeah. Did they ever resolve that? What? Like, I presume that it's part of the mix up because his phone is stolen too. But it doesn't seem it doesn't seem to inform the actual mix up that occurs. And then he he sees his father after his father has learned he's won, supposedly, talking to a woman, and this freaks him out. And it doesn't really inform anything else. I've always been that's one of the things about this film that just puzzles me. That's right. I was wondering about I did wonder about that part. Not so much the sauna the stolen clothes although i now that you mentioned it i should have thought about that but the there is a lot of import and discussion about i saw my dad with this mysterious woman and maybe he's got an affair going on but yeah the mysterious woman i don't know what she's doing like she does reappear at the end she's in the audience hmm uh when he receives a prize but i that i have that's the thing that puzzles me and the other thing that puzzles me is the the press release where they, they mention that he's won the prize, but they, the committee doesn't know how that got out. Oh, yeah. And it's never, it's never resolved. I don't know. We don't know how it got out. All right. I have a theory about that. So actually, when he went in to talk to the board, when Uriel is talking to Grossman and the council, I thought somehow Skolnick the Elder had put his name into the Goblet of Fire. I thought somehow he had cheated the system and, like, doctored the records. Because his whole thing is, you know, working with books and texts. I thought somehow he had, like, hacked the mainframe or something. Like, he had slipped in his name and overridden them, like, gotten to the printing press and doctored something. But that's not clear. Well, the father would have no reason to do that because he thinks he's won. And he's clearly, I don't think he gave it to the press because he cuts out the clipping himself. Like he cuts it out and he puts it in his file of um, 
of uh, miscellaneous miscellaneous uh okay i um, i see my theory my take on it at the moment i was a little confused but my best guess was that the father himself had been like dreaming his whole life about what would happen when he won and like what newspaper would write about it and so like he he was the one who he called he even knew what journalist he was going to call and so he called the journalist and the fact that he cut out the clipping was like him imagining the clipping that, of course, he had given the tip for, but now he could actually see it in print or something like that. I don't know. I agree. It's kind of unclear, kind of ambiguous, though. Unless a mysterious woman is, is that journalist. <laughs> could be. Yeah. I don't know. It is weird. The, the stolen clothes feels like it should uh, in the phone. The stolen phone feels like it, it should inform something, but it never does. And maybe it's just part of the huge like mix up that led to the father being called instead of the son. But what I thought it was because it kind of like showed him being very methodical about going and trying to find his clothes. And I thought it was just a little bit of more of like comedy texture for like how uh, just methodical he is. Like he's not embarrassed at all that he doesn't have his clothes. He's just walking around and going through all the precise steps he would use to find it or something. But I didn't, I didn't really follow it. I didn't read it that way. I, he just, he's going to the, he goes to the lost and found in a towel and desperate to fight anything you know, ends up with a fencing suit. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, uh, the, so the way that this is gone is that um, Eliezer is going to be able to keep it. And Uriel, who does write this recommendation, but he doesn't just like casually write a nice thing about his dad. It's like this um, cathartic experience where he like really rigorously writes out this very precisely worded, almost as if he was like writing an academic paper on describing Eliezer's career for earning this this Israel prize. And the the precision with which he is his writing this will become kind of important as the movie goes along. But we can also see that Uriel's resentment is starting to build. He's starting to see that his father getting this award and him having to sacrifice so that his dad gets it when his dad didn't really deserve it. When in fact, Uriel himself is the one who deserved it. And things get even worse because now that Eliezer is kind of empowered by this, this honor, this selection, he kind of goes on the offensive and he starts airing grievances. I was thinking about the airing of grievances on Seinfeld. He goes to, he does this interview I mentioned a little bit ago where he, he interviews with this, uh, this young woman for the newspaper. They're writing like a little feature on him or something. And he just goes on this rant about all these young scholars. They're like talking about recipes and stuff. No, you gotta, you gotta stay to the core religious text. That's what it's all about. You gotta be, you gotta be scientific about it. You gotta be thorough about it. And I thought this was a good beat. I like, I really liked as this movie was building, like all the different kind of dynamics of the characters and the tensions and ironies that were building here. Uh, that scene is remarkable. The uh, the interview, the interview with the journalist is intercut with. Uriel writing out the commendation uh, from the committee. And what it's showing is the two perspectives, the father and son's perspectives on the father's career. I think the joke with, with Uriel writing it out is he's trying to make his father sound interesting and he's struggling. He's struggling to come up with uh, the right word. So like at the beginning, this one got a laugh out of me when he talks about his father's lifelong projects plural and then he stops and he corrects it and changes it to project <laughs> uh and it's it's very similar 
um, kind of the same joke being replayed out and intercut with his father uh, going on rants. I think it's, I think it's one, of the po- one of the points where he talks about folklorists uh, invading invading the uh, mm. the academy. He, I think he chafes at the fact that the prize is called Jewish Sciences and Rabbinical Literature. He doesn't like the Jewish Sciences part. He wishes it was just Rabbinical Literature. Uh, and he gives example of of abuses of the scientific method. He, he goes on a rant about the uh, the potsherds, about how he has been methodically cleaning the potsherds, and people like his son have been just kind of throwing them together to make a pot <laughs> without caring without caring where the potsherds came from. That was a that was an interesting rant, right? Uh, some very specific examples about things he doesn't like. You know, talking about the sex lives of the rabbis. Instead of studying the text, uh, and then she goes, "Your son wrote a book about the sex lives of the rabbis," <laughs> and, and he goes, "My <laughs> son has written many books." <laughs> but Uriel also has a son, so there's like another layer to it that is not as explored. But his kid is like a twenty year old or or so, or maybe he's a late teen. But uh, the theme there is that he's like a neat. You know, not engaged in education or a trade, but uh, Uriel's like trying to prompt him, find some drive, find some ambition. And so the generational struggle goes on. Right. I like that dynamic, too. And I wanted to see more of that because the gist of what I got, and this is something I thought might have been kind of cultural that I would have understood a little more if I was a little more familiar with the culture. But basically that Uriel had been like very heavily coached and scolded by his dad to go down the same path as me. And so Uriel was trying to pivot on that and was trying to be like, be your free spirit, son, do whatever you want. I'll love you and support you anyways. I'll, I'll stand and support you from a distance. I won't guide you to exactly what it is I want you to be. You can do, do you can go on your random hikes where you're disconnected. Uh, I'll still, I'll still be here. But then like as this whole tension is building and the scenario is unfolding and Uriel's feeling more and more chafed, he starts snapping at his son. And there's one memorable one, the one that you're that you mentioned, Brian, where he's like, you know what you need to do? You need to figure out what you're going to do. Or I forget exactly what the wording is. He's like, I will gloat at your suffering. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll cut you off. I will snap. Yeah. I thought that was an interesting dynamic, too. Um, it's after after the interview is published, as Uriel thinks of himself as kind of magnanimous for giving up his own his own uh, his own prize for his father, and of course his father doesn't know that. And his father takes the opportunity to basically insult his son's life's work, which implies something he did to win his father's approval, and then he just becomes a raging asshole from that until the end of the movie. <laughs> right? Yeah. Which like because. It's a really interesting dynamic because Uriel has like not only given up his uh, the the award and not only can't talk about that and not only had to be the one to write the recommendation that was supposed to be his for his father when it becomes clear he doesn't think his father even really deserves it and his dad's insulting him in the news and I noticed as the movie went along that I thought this was a really well edited movie and my single favorite cut was when Uriel was reading the uh, interview and you could see him getting mad and then it cut to someone tearing open the envelope and it makes you 
think for a split second that he's going back on his agreement, that he's going to like pull out the recommendation and tear it up or something like that. But it turns out that it's actually already been mailed and it's in Grossman's hand. And Grossman was the one who opened it and was looking at the commendation. I thought that was a really clever cut. Yeah, let's talk about production elements because just across the board, the production values are so high in this movie. It's a film about people reading books and like writing newspaper articles, but it's shot like any like AAA title. You know, there's no genre elements. There's no fantasy stuff. It's not even like out in the Western vistas. It's like closed offices and classrooms and things like that. But every shot is like perfectly lit, really nice hair light on everything. The editing is impeccable. There's really cool like camera movements and it it stays dynamic. And there's even like kinetic typography stuff that's happening, like Zombieland or something, like words flying out and really cool the way it's put together. And so now all of this is leading up to the climax of the film, which is the ceremony where Eliezer will be given the award. And we're kind of alternately tracing Eliezer and Uriel as the lead up to this. And it's like, I think either the day before or the morning of or something, um, Eliezer's doing an interview about it. And he sees quoted portions of the letter of recommendation. I think it's an I think it's not an audition. It's like a rehearsal. I think it's a rehearsal. Oh, is it a rehearsal? I couldn't remember if it was a TV interview, if it was part of the rehearsal of it or something. There's a guy's like he's practicing reading out the commendation. Uh... Oh, OK, that makes sense. Why? Why he would actually hear it if they were practicing reading it out. But anyways, in the build up to it, the important thing is he's hearing this and uh, all these little things that have that he has noticed since he first heard about the award start piecing together. So we get snippets of the initial phone conversation that we didn't hear. And it becomes clear that the first name was never actually said. So, oh, and the dates didn't quite make sense. And the way that things were time stamped, which we understand is because there was the back and forth about whether or not he he would actually be given it. And the big giveaway is apparently Uriel uses this word fortress in describing something about Eliezer's work that is a giveaway that Uriel is actually the one who wrote it. And it becomes obvious that uh, that Eliezer has either completely pieced it together or has a very strong suspicion that something strange and uh, maybe even unsavory is afoot. Because remember... Eliezer's whole life's work is carefully studying texts so he can pick up linguistic cues. Subtle little things, yeah. Are you, do, do you want my commentary on this scene? Absolutely, yeah. So I was going to ask you, tell, tell us a little bit about this because this is a really stunning sequence when it's like it reminded me of um, The Usual Suspects. Spoiler for the end of The Usual Suspects, <laughs> but you see all these things piecing together in this very like multimedia way. And it's, it reminded me of that, that kind of clue in a main character to a big surprise, basically. Yeah. So you asked me what is, you asked me about philology and what he's doing, what he's doing is he's doing philology to figure out what's happened. 
uh, he notices that his son has a penchant for this particular cliche uh, to refer to someone's, you know, work or method as Mitsuda as a fortress or something. And he picks up on that and he rushes home. The first thing he does is look up the word in the dictionary. <laughs> uh, so he's looking at the most like detailed dictionary he can of the word Mitsuda. And then he's going through all of his son's work to see where he could find this cliche. And he notices that several points. And then he doesn't stop there. And then he goes through his rival's work. He does a he does a, a search on the terms. Um, at some point, he looks at the Talmud itself at the use of the term in the, in the Talmudic text. His son was studying, and then he starts lining things up with the phone calls. And he's doing he's doing methodical philological work, and he pieces together exactly what happened. And I thought, particular in this moment of the music, the music was like off the charts here. It's um it's a movie that I think makes the process of reading and writing exciting. <laughs> Uh, so we had an argument about that on the alternate ending server, at least. Uh, we can have one about it on your server as well, if you would like, about whether writing is ever exciting on film. Yeah, that's a great point. Like, I really ramped up in terms of my enthusiasm as the movie went along. Like, I was feeling kind of like it was dragging at the very start, but I got sucked in. It's really well put together. So like he's done basic work of textual criticism. I brought up the music because I didn't actually like the music up to this point. I think I wrote in my notes, Secret World of Alex Mack, <laughs> which is what I thought of in the earlier points where the music felt kind of, you know, that's not a sitcom, but like kind of sitcom-y. Right, kind of chintzy, yeah. It was, yeah, but it felt more operatic. Yeah, nobody melts and slides under a door in this one. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> Well, yeah, I was thinking of the theme song. I'm in the theme song. What's the reference to that, Brian? What What is that? That's like her superpower is she can, it was an old snick. You people are young. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that was the plot was that she would, she had the ability to melt and she could like. I think, I think it was still airing in, in the snow day era. Yeah. She was like a Capri Sun liquid metal person and she could access secure areas so i have to look this up gotcha but it was very like late 90s early 2000s i'm going to look up air dates if if that's not too uh oh please do we go down rabbit holes here uh 94 to 98 okay so yeah 90s part of the snick lineup see snick that's what i said 78 episodes so you know you missed out so not to discourage us from further snick discussion gavin but what does philology entail? It's the study of words in their historical context, <laughs> really. Um, I think for someone like Eliezer Skolnik, what the words that are used in the Talmud are more, more important than what the Talmud is actually talking about. <laughs> That's interesting. It's the more thematic text that his son works on, because so he talked his book about the marital relations of the rabbis are drawn upon the Talmudic texts by his father. I don't think they actually talk about, they talk a little bit about what he does. So he's more interested in whether, you know, when he looks at the Talmudic text at the end, he uses a plural, he uses some weird uh, form of mitzuda, mitzudaim, uh, strange, as a feminine, a feminine word. Uh, so I'm going off on a tangent. It's like, he's more interested in the word. He's more interested in the word and what it means. And the context in which it occurs, which is his, his own letter of recommendation, is less important. But he uses that to discover truths about 
how the letter was written, you know, who wrote it, to what purpose. <laughs> well, the reason I brought it up was just because some context for listeners, some metagaming. Off pod, Gavin and I have had some philology discussion uh, as it relates to J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, in our Lord of the Rings deep dive episode, I called Tolkien a linguist. And Gavin said, he's not a linguist, he's a philologist. Well, that's the worst thing you could call a philologist, it's a linguist. I, mean, I said, to me, that's like saying, that's not a scientist, he's a biologist. So what? where is the distinction between linguist and, and philologist? Oh, so you, you caught me, uh, now I have to do it off the off the top of my head instead of... Oh, you should have known to come prepared. Doing what a philologist would do with the deep dive research. I mean, a linguist is someone who's interested in the structure, the structure of language. Uh, and I would say the philologist is interested, mostly interested in historical texts, usually within one language tradition. So Tolkien, Tolkien, who, by the way, was kind of a classic Eliezer. Um, he, he would have been more like the father than the son. He did... Um, Text pertaining to especially Old English, Old Icelandic, uh, Old German, Old Germanic languages. So he wouldn't do something related to like Semitic languages or Chinese or anything like that. Whereas I guess one way to put it is that, you know, a philologist has to know several languages in depth to do their work. A linguist, like in principle, a linguist doesn't need to know any language besides their own. You wouldn't be a very good linguist. If you did that, uh, you would be um, the thing you have to look I to to give them uh, a fair description of linguism or linguists. I would have to uh, I'd have to actually read some, you know, let's read actual Noam Chomsky talking about. Uh, so remember, Noam Chomsky has has some hang up about recursion in language, which is a grammatical feature that appears in in multiple languages or I think all languages except this one from some uncontacted tribe and there's a debate over that it's like someone uh someone had had defied one of chomsky's theories about recursion and that's the extent to which i know about about linguists <laughs> um it's about it's, it's more like about grammatical form you don't need i don't think linguists necessarily study texts philologists always study texts i see that seems like a pretty good logline description and linguists might it might be like the difference between like anthropology and history a little bit. But like anthropology, you think of people studying, you know, living living humans and current societies, whereas a historian is is occupied with the past, you know, kind of the same thing, but yeah. Before. Of course, I've also heard people talk about the difference between history and historiography. Well, uh, uh, yeah, don't let's not get into that. There's no historiography discussion in this. <laughs> If you want to talk about that, I'll make you guys watch. I can make you watch a movie or where that would that would be a good topic of discussion. Oh. Well, of course, we'll have to have you back eventually. So yeah. keep one in the chamber. Yeah, I've got it. I've got it. I know it. I know which one I'm going to give you next. <laughs> um, we need to have our old pal Colton. And I, when I say old pal, I mean older than Gavin pal. Going back to I met I knew met Colton my freshman year of high school. But anyways, Colton ended up majoring in linguistics in college, I think, or I think he double majored in linguistics and physics and then ended up getting a physics PhD. Don't know how much he ended up using his linguistics for that, but he did some like side projects with it. But anyways, to give linguistics a fair shake, have him on the pod at some point. 
maybe even a battle royale if we want to have like a philology versus linguistics on our film pod here. But back to the movie at hand here. Uh, one last thought on, on this, just to kind of put a exclamation point on it. I was just in awe of like the layers of irony and, and just character development that had built to this sequence because there is something so juicy about the way that the dad was using his like very narrow minded focus to obsess over the thing itself rather than like celebrating the prize. And the fact that it was his son who did it, who was like the source of all the resentment anyways, going back to the very beginning ceremony. And now we're at the end of the ceremony that kind of mirrored it. Just a brilliant piece of writing, I thought, to kind of cap off this film or I guess serve as the climax to the the conclusion, because the conclusion is pretty interesting here. I feel like from this point on, the movie has a certain surreality to it. The day of the presentation, both Uriel and Eliezer are there, of course, and they're both seething for very different, but like kind of parallel reasons. Uriel is, of course, mad that his dad has been bad-mouthing him and is going to get all this praise when Uriel was the one who deserved it. Eliezer's mad because now he's kind of caught on that Uriel was kind of in some way gaming it to get it to Eliezer. It's not 100% clear to me if he knew exactly every single step of what went down, but I think he's pieced together that Uriel was kind of the one who was supposed to get it and has gamed it so that Eliezer gets it. And so nobody's happy about it. And this whole sequence, it's weird. It's like almost alien or like afterlifey or something. And he like goes through this tunnel that's like stark white and there's just like weird lights all around and stuff as he's getting ready to uh, to receive his award. Yeah, it's like a steam tunnel. There's like a pump of like Batman gas. I don't know. They're like steam vents or something. But yeah, it, it just a drawn out like march to the gallows almost or something. This slow procession into the hall. Gavin, was there specific imagery we were supposed to be picking up here? that you caught on to or was it just kind of like emphasizing the weird heightened emotions or something i mean the only thing about this this scene that i really have have to say is that it mirrors the opening one which you already pointed out or the focus on eliezer's face uh i believe the mysterious woman shows up in the crowd hmm. something i didn't notice the first time i watched the film but at this point i was about to pass out from exhaustion because <laughs> so i needed to go to sleep <laughs> um and i knew it was the end of the films so it kind of ends in a strange way yeah, that's the end. We don't know. Everybody is boiling over. They're about to have this confrontation. And then it ends. Credits roll. There were still six minutes left on Tubi. It just stops. <laughs> of course, this one's on Tubi. Oh, I love the peoples. The people streamer. Presumably, maybe there's credits and then there's like the credits in other languages or something. But I was sure there was going to be more to the movie. Right. I, I, I thought this was really, really stunning, too, because... It seems it's like exactly what you're about to say. Everybody is on edge. What is the crazy, angry thing that's going to happen? Is it going to be something dramatic or is it going to be one of those things where it's like, just like in the first scene, everybody kind of quietly boiled and then everybody moved on with their lives. And we don't know what the answer is. We don't know what's going to happen because it ends just as he steps out on stage to for the ceremony to start for him to get his award. So I guess, first of all, I'm curious, do we like this ambiguity I suspect Brian's answer, Brian's a fireworks factory kind of guy. So he he likes to see the, the actual action. But uh, Gavin, what was your take on this? Well, And Brian too. I think Brian should go first because I think this would be the perfect time to talk about my theory on Israeli cinema. 
this is a very typical ending to an Israeli comedy uh, shot. Everyone is sad. <laughs> Life is difficult. Everyone is sad. <laughs> okay. Well, that that's good to know. It gives some context, at least. I was riding high at this point. I was like, like you said, ready for the fireworks. So this set it back just a hair for me because I, I want to know what happened. But I mean, I don't know. I guess it works. It it still kind of works. I still liked the movie. I'll talk a little more when we get to our ratings. But I feel like it pulled a punch at the last moment. So Gavin, so you so you're saying that you felt this was in character for Israeli film? Oh yes. So tell us a little bit more about is your experience with Israeli film. Right. So you know. I felt like I had seen a whole lot of Israeli films. Um, and then when I got Letterboxd Pro, it kind of disabused me of that. It says I've seen 20, <laughs> which uh, is a lot more than I think most most people uh, outside of Israel. Um, but I was disappointed. My theory of Israeli cinema is that you can put all, all Israeli movies into two boxes. So all of all of their movies are either about one of their one of Israel's many wars usually usually focusing not always but usually on israel palestine or it is a family dramedy and usually those are sadder than the war movies <laughs> <laughs> and this one is of course you get mixtures of the two it's a great way it's, it's very easy to mix those two things uh this one is very typical israeli dramedy probably funnier than most Oh, this movie is not it's not especially funny. It's not trying to get it's not trying to get a laugh a minute. And it, it, it draws an irony to the idea that there's no there's no fulfillment, there's no happy ending. And things don't boil over. As I said, I wasn't expecting it to, to be honest. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. The dramatic high point is, you know, as the father is I actually completely forgotten the father discovers the truth. It's like the father discovering the truth is kind of the the, the last interesting thing you can do. As we've already seen this guy blow up before, so and if it was like um, I don't know, a screwball, com- a screwball comedy, sure, but it tends to be more rooted in in uh, in real life than that. And something we didn't say is that in between when the father publishes his scathing criticism of these whippersnappers trying to expand Jewish studies and the realization that Uriel wrote the recommendation letter. The whole family goes and watches Fiddler on the Roof. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to bring that up. I forgot that too. So there's this tension under the surface as they're watching Tevye. And I like this scene that the wife, so I I think we're supposed to take it to be the mom of Uriel and the wife of um, Eliezer. She's very stoic and stone-faced. And I thought this was also a cultural thing. Like, we would understand this type a little bit more if we had seen some of Israeli cinema. But Uriel, in his, like, his just frustration at his dad's, like, going out there and criticizing him, even though he's sworn to secrecy, he slips to his mother that it was actually supposed to be him who won it. And we get this this look on the mom's face. She's not a major character, but I like this one scene of where, like, we get just enough of a twitch in her face that she realizes that this is a piece of dynamite here, that that his fuse has not quite been lit, but it's, it's certainly at risk of being lit. Like, when you first see them sitting in the theater, the father and son are as far apart as possible. 
So I remember, and then there's a break between the acts, and I cannot remember, I cannot remember the conversation that happens, but something happens that makes uh, Uriel mad enough that he slips over to the mom and just kind of whispers in her ear is that you're, you know, Eliezer doesn't deserve this prize. I faked it all. And I think, I just felt like she just keeps staring forward. Right. You know, it's like my memory is kind of, for me, like the, it was just really bizarre to see Filler on the Roof performed in Hebrew. It reminds me of a scene in, in Mad Men. Who plays the silver-haired guys, like John Slattery or something like that? Yeah, I think so. At one point, he's talking about what kind of, they're talking about their the target audience for an ad they're working on. is like, well, tell me about the public, if they're, the Jewish Jewish customers they're targeting. And he goes, tell me about the audience. Is it Fiddler on the Roof? Is it the people on the stage or the people in the audience? <laughs> <laughs> It's a, a line I've retained from, from Mad Men. I thought about that. I thought about that when I, I was watching them watch Fiddler on the Roof in, in Hebrew. Uh, and the father is happy on the way back home and seeing tradition in the car. <laughs> so, but in Hebrew. Oh. I chuckled at that. Yeah. Tradition. So I guess my last question is, we don't see what, what would happen, but what do we think would happen if there was five more minutes of this movie? My theory is that they would just go on with their lives and be angry forevermore, that there wouldn't be any dramatic blow up. But I don't know. What do you th- what do you guys think? I'm in total agreement with that. These people are going to are going to take their, the secret to their deaths. They're both going to know the truth and they're not going to let the other one know that they know. <laughs> right. They're both too proud to admit it. I agree. Gotcha. And that's how footnote ends. Footnote 2011. Israeli film by Joseph Cedar, nominated for one Oscar, best international picture. This was an interesting one, Gavin. So let's talk about some things we might not have touched on. I feel like we hit a lot of good stuff in there, but what are what are some additional things in here? Do you have anything else? Any other any other topics or tangents you want to hit on, Gavin? I I do. I I would like to let you guys speak first. I hit most of my notes because I wanted to call out the editing, which I really enjoyed. And I guess for me, um, I'm kind of on the, the wavelength of Brian where I thought the opening was kind of slow and stuffy. And I thought it got a little more dynamic as the movie went along. Or maybe I just kind of understood the film's visual language a little bit more. But I think it was doing slightly more bravura and funny things as the movie was going along. I don't think it was just... I didn't understand it yet, although I think that was at least a factor. But I definitely was vibing more with the movie as it went. And really just the way that the that you have these core characters, mainly the father and the son, but you also got the 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 rival and you got the, the mom and you've got a couple other characters here. And the way that all these dynamics kind of piece together, it just felt very uh, like a, a well-designed set of gears ratcheting the tension and just these these interesting uh conflicts and and uh i've used the word ironies just like kind of funny contradictions and stuff that are in there i thought the movie got better as it went along and it although i was a little taken aback as well by the the ending i didn't really they didn't really bring it down that much for me because i thought it had done really interesting stuff leading up to that that's kind of my overall observation on on what worked for me but uh, Brian, was there anything else you wanted to add before we get to our summary? Or I know we're going to give Gavin here a minute. Well, I've kind of already described it, but I found it really dynamic, especially as it went along. More so than I would ever expect 
a movie about ancient Bible scholarship to be. So, Gavin, what are a couple other topics you want to talk about here? Well, you know, I said this is kind of like the film, the film, the Jewish studies film. And you know, knowing a lot of people in this in this line of work, the the question everyone asks each other is, uh, who is this film about? <laughs> and I actually wrote to my thesis director saying, "Oh, you told me that you you thought you knew who that this film was based on," and, and I wasn't satisfied with his answer. Oh, and I, I did some digging, and I had read I, I I had read something recently that a description of an older scholar that who sounded a whole lot like. Uh, Eliezer Skolnick, and I guess I I, I stumbled across it in my own little uh, uh, footnote way, and that I'm I'm doing work on Esther, the Book of Esther, a uh, biblical book in its Aramaic translation, and there's a large section of the Babylonian Talmud dedicated to uh, the interpretation of Esther, published by a fellow named. Uh, there's a commentary on it published by Eliezer Segal, like three huge volumes. And he was a student of a man named E.S. Rosenthal, Eliezer Shimson Rosenthal. And Seagal suspected that the movie was based on him and his advisor. And he wrote he wrote about it online. There's a I can give you a link like right now. It's called uh, Some Footnotes to Footnote. And he writes in this in this uh, my graduate supervisor he doesn't actually name his supervisor so my graduate supervisor es rosenthal uh those publication record was not quite as sparse as professor skolnick's was legendary for his reluctance to make his discoveries publicly accessible he went so far as to have his own doctoral dissertation a brilliant study of a dozen leaves from the babylonian talmud removed from the stacks of the jewish national and university library of the few articles he published during his lifetime, several appeared in obscure collections, and their significance was hidden under vague titles like contributions to the Talmudic lexicon. Ultimately, most of his scholarly output was published posthumously. And the thing I was trying to look for before the show started but couldn't find was um, uh, someone criticizing this scholar, um, Rosenthal, for feeling like he had to know everything before he could publish anything. And it seemed like exactly the type of person who would be you know, reluctant to publish as they felt in, like they knew insufficiently and who would, what they were talking about, and who would be scooped by others. Um, at one point in the movie, Uriel says, I don't have 80 years to work on this. You know, I've got to publish this now. And that's the opposite of the way his father worked you know, to his to his own detriment. And then he talks about um, well, this. This I should, I sh I'll send you the link after the show's over. Uh, he also talks about some of the other uh, real life figures that uh, have fictional counterparts in the movie, such as uh, Feinstein, the hero, um, Eliezer's hero, and uh, talks a little bit about the European Geniza and how uh, Eliezer Segal had found a hidden manuscript in a book binding and his advisor was panicked about it and <laughs> asked him to give it to him. Uh, I think that might be the incident the movie is based on. So, huh. Interesting. Again, not as dramatic. But you kind of get the sense that this came from the collective wisdom and observations of like these types of people and maybe like an amalgamation of one or two or three incidents, but brought to like a more heightened 
dramatic version of it. I, I definitely can see how there could be potentially incidents that this was actually based off of to at least some extent. Uh, Joseph Cedar has insider knowledge and it scares me because I'm not familiar with this film director, but he knows someone who is on the inside. Uh, he name drops, he name drops several real, real scholars, including like Daniel Boyar and his mentioned at the beginning when they're talking about Jewish manhood and they mentioned getting, uh, Getty Allahu uh, alone and uh, Salo Baron, a famous historian. And they talk about real world projects, the European Geniza. They talk about a Mishnah project, which which my um, thesis advisor is working on. Not, no, they don't say anything about the project in the film. Uh, Yehuda Grossman has apparently some kooky theories about the Dead Sea Scrolls, as mentioned in passing. And they mention a horrible incident where he denies he denies a doctorate to a woman on her deathbed. And that sounds too on the nose. It sounds like something that's based off of um, uh, something that happened, though. I have no that's just I have no further knowledge of that, but it's too um, too specific. And some of the BOMO attributed to Eliezer uh, Skolnik, I think, are based off of things scholars have said about each other. The one where he's talking about um, the woman who has new ideas that are wrong and right ideas that are not new. I have heard someone characterize a real world scholar in this way. <laughs> someone, hmm. someone more distinguished than the student in the film, who's not not in not in danger of losing her position. But they, that was the uncomplimentary thing they said. And uh, the beautiful ideas that are wrong. I'm pretty sure my Hebrew teacher said that to me at some point. Uh, but um, I I was astounded by the insider knowledge uh, in this film. And usually when you're watching a film about your profession, they get everything wrong. And this one is 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 uh, eerily on the nose. It frightens me, to be honest. I know I hope <laughs> I hope um I don't run into Joseph Cedar in real life for he'll make a movie about me. <laughs> I mean that's cool. It's good for any subculture to have their film. I wanna reiterate though that it, it could almost work. Like the the energy here for any really niche subculture like it almost reminded me of like king of kong did you have you ever watched that one dan mm, i have yeah yeah where it's about the like diehard uh arcade uh computers they they enter the tournaments right yeah speed runners high score competitors for all arcade games funnily enough you might be able to hear it in my recording i'm recovering from a a pretty nasty cold right now and i was kind of like in a fever state a couple days ago and I was reading this article about uh, Billy Mitchell, the focus of King of Kong. And just recently, there was this really dramatic thing. Everything with him and, and this whole scene is dramatic and kind of humorously so. Like, people from the outside kind of laugh about how dramatic it is. And this movie, I agree, touches on that to some extent. But the recent one was this one record that has since been broken. But the question is, should this have ever been counted as a record from, like, 15 years ago or something with Billy Mitchell, uh, he always claimed was legitimate and that you can ask the hundreds of people who were there and observed him to do it. But the people who are accusing him of not actually having the record found some photos from that day. And yes, he did get that score. But if you look from certain, a couple of the photos get just the angle. You can see the box that he did it on the arcade box and the jo the joystick he had was not a regulation joystick. It was not an inch and a half black joystick. It was a two inch red joystick. So 
that was like the bombshell that 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 record should never have counted. And it's funny how that's still being litigated more than a decade after that documentary came out. I haven't I haven't seen King of Kong, and I mean, I, I have been wanting to see it. Billy Mitchell is the villain, right? He's the one that the, the establishment figure that this guy is trying to take down. That's right. Although Steve Wiebe, it's not like he has no blood on his hands either. I mean, I, there's been speculation about his records too, so. Oh, that... That movie definitely is like narrativized to make one character a hero and another character a villain. It's probably irresponsible documentary filmmaking, but but entertaining. <laughs> That's entertaining, yeah, exactly. But anyways, uh, so Gavin, it's interesting. We were talking on the the Discord for the alternate ending podcast recently about how there's a guy in, in on that Discord named Zev Burrows. And he's this uh, terrific musical composer. And he was talking about how he really did not like the recent movie Tar because whenever he sees, well, not whenever he, when he sees it, but he thought that that movie did a very, it was supposedly about classical music, but it didn't really capture the truth of classical music. And, you know, I'm a computer programmer and the joke with computer programmers is if you ever see hacking or computer programming in, in cinema or TV, it's always it's it's comedic for people who actually know how computers work and how networks work and things like that. <laughs> it, I take it that this film has not suffered by being obsessive about and focused on your niche, but in fact uh, is more interesting to you because of it. Perhaps in part because of what you're saying that this director really seems to understand how the the sphere works and has some of this insider knowledge. Yeah, it is it is unfortunately a very accurate portrait of academia both in terms of the brittle personalities, people who, who are very precious about having their ideas stolen or have rivalries and will do terrible things to each other uh, for retribution. Uh, and also in terms of what you do, like what you do in terms of philological work, uh, what people are working on, what they're writing about, uh, this film this film is, is, is very accurate, I would say. And I guess the reason it got nominated for an Oscar is because it's focused on the personalities rather than on the minutiae of Talmud study, uh, kind of like Tar, which is not really interesting classical music as such, but without, um, I know nothing really about classical music. I, I quite like Tar, but, uh, I don't think, um, I was not annoyed at this movie the way that Zev Burroughs was by, by Tar. Yeah. I like Tar too. Yeah. One last thing I was going to point out, circling back to something you said a few minutes ago now, but, uh, talking about the, the way that he kind of obsessively hoards, maybe hoards isn't the right word, but kind of protects his own documents and stuff and like hermetically seals them. I always liked this image of when he had his, all of his documents in the little envelopes and stuff or whatever, the way that he was sealed. And then it got funnier because he would like put news clippings in it the same way that he had his other, <laughs> uh, like his historical documents as if he like saw the entire world through this lens of this obsessive, precise, academic, uh, philological, I suppose, lens. I thought that was good. It scared me because I do the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I, I am ready to rate this movie. Do you, you guys ready to? I'm ready. Yes, yes, I'm ready. All right. So is it good as our signature section where we, where we each give the movie a rating on our eight-point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, which is a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating, 
Tour de Good, which is an 8 out of 8. So we'll start with Brian. Brian is footnote from 2011. Good. I really enjoyed this one. It's quite good. Uh, I was just always impressed point to point at the cinematography and the editing and the style of it all. It like went above and beyond what it had to be just because a lot of the action is very static. It's very in place. And, you know, most of the settings are libraries and college classrooms. You know, it's pretty funny. And I was right at the point that I was going to give it a seven as we had gotten to the point where the father had cracked the case. And so they're heading into this ceremony like ready to grab each other by the throat, except they got to go do this dignified thing. And then the credits rolled and that's pulled it just a hair back. It's like the very highest six (laughs) out of eight for me, which we've termed very good. All right. Gavin is footnote. Good. I, yes. (laughs) I'm glad to say yes. Okay. So on letterbox, I I made a, a personal canon. You know, the films that have deeply like impacted me on a personal letter level and um, currently sitting at 100 movies, but I've decided to just expand it whenever a movie makes makes a, a, a big impression. But footnote, footnote, there's no question that I was going to go on that on that list and watching it again. I just kind of reaffirmed that I, you, I noticed how many things uh, I had missed the first time around. So like this is again, like with Destiny, this is a movie that was kind of made for me. So I was never not going to like it. And the only thing I really dislike about it is is the music for most of the running time, uh, with the exception of the climactic scene and the Fiddler on the Roof scene. As you know, Fiddler on the Roof is a, is a great musical. So um, I will not withhold the seven. I would give it I would give it a seven out of eight. Exceptionally good. Yeah, four and a half on, on Letterboxd. Uh, which I have to get through right away. Nice. Very cool. So then it comes to me. Do I think that footnote is good? I am right there with you guys, too. I I really got a big kick out of this, as you could probably tell from our conversation as we were going on. It gradually escalated for me. Just really exciting and dynamic for for, for what it is, like like Brian said. And obviously, I don't connect with it personally in the same way that Gavin did. In fact, I almost like got a kick out of how it kind of is making fun of the the subject at hand to some extent of like how it's kind of very niche. And I don't know, but I do think it starts kind of slow and uh, there's sort of an air of stuffiness that it needs to shake and get playful with that I think it does eventually do. But I really liked it. And there's there's a couple of confusing bits for me. Um, We talked about some of them and I think maybe if I saw it again, it would click even a little bit more, but I'm still going to give it a six, a very good. I thought this is a very good movie, and I, I'd put it on the upper half of a very good. I would probably give it a four stars, which is my my upper very goods get four stars on Letterboxd. How much How much would you give it out of 100? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't want to call out any other critics and grading systems. <laughs> we, we do have oh. running jokes on the Alternate Discord about about other grading systems that some people use or letter grades. I don't know. Yeah. No, I, I, I like this one though. I think this is good. So thank you for bringing it to our attention, Gavin. And this was, this is exciting. You're definitely, you not only bring us stuff that's different, but you bring stuff that raises the 
the intellectual rigor of our, our pod. Wouldn't you say so, Brian? Absolutely. I don't get to say Pentateuch often enough. <laughs> Maybe we need a Pentateuch theme month, Brian. <laughs> I mean, it's five, right? We do five entries, so... Oh, there you go. Yeah, we just got to get the right Deuteronomy movie. Yeah, where's Deuteronomy? Yeah. <laughs> right, do you want me to put you... Do you want me to put a list together for you? Uh, yeah. I mean, if we're going to do this podcast for the long haul, uh, who knows? Don't say it if you don't mean it. <laughs> <laughs> it would It would be easy. It would be, it would be surprisingly easy. Let's noodle on that. Could we, could we hit all five of the Pentateuch? Yeah, send us your favorite Leviticus movie. <laughs> well, th- this is the one I would have picked for the Leviticus movie, to be honest. Okay. Uh, let, me, let me get back to you on that. I can think, I can think about it. But, uh, Brian, we were derailed for train month for a week so i think we are picking up next week with train to busan is that what it is that's right korean zombie movie zombies on a train train month week two so we will look forward to that and gavin i think what we're approaching 5 30 a.m yes i can still sleep for two more hours before my daughter wakes up <laughs> she didn't make a peep i was very worried about disturbing her but she could have been a guest entrant on the pod hear her opinions on philology Oh, she has many opinions. <laughs> <laughs> three-year-olds often do. That's one thing I've learned from yes. my three-year-old. But yeah. Okay, well, like, thanks for having me. It was great to be back on. I would love to do it again. Yeah. So, uh, oh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. Absolutely. Have, have a good evening, everybody. Bye. Bye.